Let's open our Bibles to the 40th Psalm, please. Psalm 40. And this is a psalm of deliverance, a psalm of David. And he has praise in the first several verses for deliverance. And down about verse 5, he praises God for all of his wonderful works. And then on down from verse 6 on through uh, 10, we find the Messiah speaks. And then David's prayer, beginning with verse 11. And Jesus can be seen throughout the whole psalm. We first, we could look at these first three verses and see ourselves in our own deliverance, and we might do that after we first see what Jesus endured for us and see everything in perfection in Christ here as far as this first verse, patience, is concerned. Notice in verse 1 it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, we know patience is required, and most of us do not have enough of it, but uh, Jesus was patient completely. There's never one that exhibited more of patience in under trial or un, under any circumstances than did Jesus Christ. And I know that if you look down to verse 6 and 7 and 8, you'll see Jesus Christ, as uh, we find in the book of Hebrews, that this refers to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So if we see Jesus in these verses... Down 6 through 8, I know that we can see him in the previous verses. So let's uh, consider Christ first of all. He waited patiently. He, kn- he learned to wait patiently. He knew how to be patient in all circumstances of life. And he says, And he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Now, why is it that Jesus would have to cry out and ask God to hear his cry? Even though he was the Son of God, as a man, he cried out. If you read over in the book of Hebrews, it says, it tells us that he heard his cry. And that after he'd offered up strong supplications and uh, with strong crying and tears in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse uh, 7, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears, it says, unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So we see Jesus Christ perfectly pictured here in these verses. And it says, I waited back in our psalm, now Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. We know that was true of Christ. He says, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit. You say, well, when was Jesus in a pit? In a literal sense of the word, he was not. But he was in the horror and in the depths of the pit of sin for you and I, because he had none of his own. And so he suffered as if he were in the pit. He was just the same as there on our account. And he says, Out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. Out of the miry clay. Think of that for a moment. How would Jesus be in the depths of a pit and in the miry clay? It shows us the position he took for you and I. By way of substitution. And it says, And set my feet upon a rock. In other words, the Lord brought him forth from the grave and resurrected him and established my goings. He, we have the very firm foundation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to stand upon. We have that because he has given us such a foundation. And then he says, And hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. We know that we could carry out in detail each and every one of these things as far as Jesus was concerned. 
that he sang praises in the midst of the congregation. He says, will I sing praise unto thee? But I want us to look back now at these same three verses and see how that they apply to you and I. First of all, we see the power of the Savior. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit. So this is his power. He's able to bring the sinner up out of an horrible pit. And then we see the condition of the sinner. We should have given the condition of the sinner first and then the power of the Savior because that would be the proper order. But we were, first of all, in a horrible pit, and then he brought us up out of it. We were in the pit of sin, and we were in the horrible pit, and our feet were on the miry clay. We had no firm standing. Our steps were on slippery ground. We had no solid foundation to stand upon. So... Our condition was hopeless and, and helpless without the Savior. And he brought us up out of the horrible pit. And then, notice the next thing, the security of the saved. The condition of the sinner in the horrible pit. The power of the Savior, Savior he brought me up. The security of the saved, he set my feet upon a rock. Look at that. <clears throat> in other words, he gave us a sure foundation. He is the rock of our salvation. The Bible says that other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. We're built upon that foundation. He is the foundation of the church. And the apostles, he is the chief cornerstone. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we have the solid foundation of our faith is built upon Jesus Christ and him alone. And then notice the... He set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. This is the next thing you find that he's done. This is the walk of the saved. The walk of the saved. He established our goings in a new life. Once he delivered us out of the horrible pit by his power, set our feet upon the solid rock of himself, Christ is the sure rock of our salvation, then he established our goings so that we could go about and know the way wherein we should walk. Being guided by His Word, being led by His Holy Spirit, knowing that, that our way is established, that we have His Word to show us the way to live. So the walk of the saved. And then the song of the saved. And He had put a new song in my mouth. The song of the saved. What kind of song do we sing? We sing a song of redemption. And then what, what else do we find here? We have uh, the testimony of the saved. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. What is it? The testimony of the saved. Many see your life. Once he establishes your walk, then many see your, your walk in life, and it has an influence upon them. So then, there you have the testimony of the saved. And then the last thought is the influence of, of the saved. The testimony, many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. The influence is that they, by seeing it, shall trust in the Lord, the influence of the saved. So when others see your walk and your testimony, after he's put a new song in your mouth, then they're influenced thereby. You know, I believe that every person influences someone else in one way or another, for good or for bad. Just like if you remember in the case of Peter after the resurrection, he says he got tired waiting. He says, I'll go fishing. And they said, we also go with thee. So 
whether it was right or wrong, and I've heard it discussed in every direction, but whatever, he did have an influence on those that followed him, didn't he? Now, if we'll take the influence that God has given us, if we'll be influence people for good and for God, well, then that is the right way for us to do. That's the commendable thing for us to do. And we're able to do that. And someone, somewhere, is watching how you live, what you do day by day, how you live a Christian life, and it does affect them. That's the sermon that you're preaching to, to those round about you, is how you live, how you act, what you say, and what you do. They may not read the Bible, but they're reading your life. Now, then they ought to read the Bible, but they may not do that. But they certainly will read your life. All right? So, what do we find in these verses then? Patience is required, isn't it? Patience is a necessary thing. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Let me give you this. James says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. James mentions in those two verses three times over the word patience. You and I, we get tired of waiting. That's one thing we don't like to do. We say, Lord, do something for us immediately, if not sooner. We want everything now. But God says to learn to be patient. Learn to be patient. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as the eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they not only run, but they shall walk and not faint. All right? Now then, there's something else we see in this first verse. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Not only is patience required, but we see the condescension of the Lord. We're going back over the same three verses now. The condescension of the Lord. He inclined unto me. Why is it that God would incline unto me? Isn't that condescending grace that, that God, a holy and righteous God, Pure, perfect in every aspect, in all of his divine attributes, would incline unto a poor, miserable sinner in a horrible pit and in the miry clay. It, that's condescension. And that shows us the condescension of the Lord himself. And then we refer again to verse 2. We're rescued by the grace of God. If we look back into the pit that we were originally in, if you read Isaiah chapter, let me give it to you, 51, 51 and verses 1 and 2, it says this, Hearken to me, ye that follow <clears throat> after righteousness. Ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. Now, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, when he was yet in idolatry. And that's the pit, that's the hole of the pit whence you're digged. He says, you look back unto, uh, whence you're, unto the rock whence you're hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you're digged. So originally, and by nature, that's where we came from. So we're rescued from the pit of sin by grace, by the grace of God. Remember, old Jeremiah was cast into a dungeon. And in that dungeon, there was no water in it, but there was mire. And his feet sunk down into the mire. It's a perfect picture of, of uh, what we've just been 
reading about here, as David puts it. We find in verse 2 the firm foundation. What is the firm foundation for our faith? We know that our feet are set upon the rock. What is that firm foundation that we have? Not only Jesus Christ himself, but God says in his word, the foundation of the Lord standeth sure. It's a sure foundation, isn't it? Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And then the Bible says, uh, Paul says, For I know whom I have believed. How many can say, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day? That's a firm foundation, isn't it? To have your faith in Jesus Christ and know that you're standing on solid ground. John writes to us in 1 John chapter 5, I believe, verse 13. He says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. What is it? The firm foundation that every believer knows that he has eternal life. Because God has promised that through Jesus Christ. How do you know it? Because of what John says he's written. That's how you know it. You say, well, I have an inward witness. Yes, we have the witness in ourselves. But we also have the witness in his word, do, do we not? That bears witness to the fact that we have a sure foundation to stand upon. A stable Christian established my goings. Look at this in verse 2 again. He's established my goings. He gives the Christian stability. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. It says, be, uh, Therefore be ye unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. Let me read this verse. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Isn't that good? That God will establish you, that God will strengthen you, and that God will settle you. God's word brings stability for the child of God. And then again, we see not only uh, what we've already pointed out, but a transformed life. In verse 3 again, He has put a new song in my mouth, even praising to our God. In the New Testament, we find the Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. So there's a, a transformed life that comes with believing uh, on Jesus Christ, that you're rescued by His grace, you're Established in your goings. Your life is changed completely. And then, a living example of the grace of God in the last few verses. It says, Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. You, you and I need to be a living example of the grace of God, what God's grace has done for us. In verse 3 also you see that those that fear, many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord. That there's a man here who has praise to God in verse 3. So this man is a happy man, a blessed man. We said in the beginning of our teaching in the Psalms that Psalm 1 gives you an introduction to the whole of the Psalms. And so you go back to the first Psalm and you'll find it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And so on. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. 
So in these first three verses, then, I believe you have, first of all, Jesus Christ and what he underwent. And then you have the, the salvation of the sinner. And then you have these lessons that we've taught. Patience, condescension, rescued by grace, a firm foundation, a stable Christian, a transformed life, a living example of the grace of God. In fact, a blessed man altogether. And then look in verse 4 and 5. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. This would correspond with Psalm 1 as well. But in verse 5, Many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful works, which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are, which are to usward, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. What do we see here? We see the psalmist offering praise to God for his wonderful works, for his works of creation, for his works of grace, and for his work of redemption. If you read the 107th Psalm, you can read it all the way through, Psalm 107, and we won't take time, of course, to read it, but you'll see it says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And that there's one blessing right after another, all the way through the, this 107th Psalm which gives rise to praise, praising God and thanking God for his wonderful works. We see his work of creation. Certainly we can thank God for that because we wouldn't have a place for us to live. Uh, we wouldn't have this uh, wonderful uh, provision for all of nature, all of mankind and everything uh, that God has made had he not made everything that he has made. He made it all in one harmonious whole for us. And then we praise God for His work of grace. Where would you be apart from the work of the grace of God? Where would you be? You'd be steeped in sin. You would be a sinner with no hope. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, without hope, without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you that were far off are made nigh or brought near by the blood of Christ. So, you can praise God for His work of grace. And then you can praise God for His work of redemption. Had not Jesus come down into this world and given Himself in death on the cross of Calvary, there a sacrifice and make an atonement for our sins, then we would have no hope. The Bible says without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no redemption. There's no remission of sins. The Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That's the only thing that's connected there is the blood of Christ will bring redemption. You find it in Ephesians 1, 7 and Colossians 1, 14. Now then, I want you to look at verse uh, 5 again. It says, Many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Could you ever count or number the blessings and the works of God that he has done for you? They're more than, than could be numbered. If you were to try to count them up, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. We sing a song. Many times, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. So we cannot add up. We can't take a machine and add up the blessings of God. 
his blessings of creation, his blessings of nature, his blessings of provision, his blessings of mercy, his blessings of grace, his blessings of, of salvation, and all that comes to the believer through Jesus Christ, all of his wonderful care for us day by day, and for the life that he's provided for us here, but especially for eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now then, more than we can number. Let's begin reading with verse 6. Here we see the Messiah speaks, and we see that animal sacrifices alone will not please God, that Jesus Christ in his sacrifice for sin is the only thing that would fulfill the necessary sacrifice for sin. Look in verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Now, all of this is quoted in Hebrews, the tenth chapter, in application to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that all the Old Testament sacrifices... Though God ordained those sacrifices, they did not satisfy God. They were only a picture and a symbol and a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who would come and give himself a sacrifice for our sins. Read Hebrews chapter 10. Let me give it to you quickly. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. It says, For it was not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering for sins, and offering for sin, Thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. And it says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What do you see in that? Jesus Christ came to do the will of God, even to the extreme of sacrificing himself, which would be well-pleasing to the Father. I came to do thy will, O God, and offer myself. A body hast thou prepared me. And so Christ fulfilled the types and shadows of the Old Testament to the extent of completion, so that after he was offered on the cross of Calvary, or after he offered himself on the cross of Calvary, there's never been a need for another a bullock to be slain, another lamb to be slain, another animal sacrifice to be sacrificed. The Bible says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And you have the full, complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ in order to bring salvation, to provide salvation for the repentant sinner. Now then, I want you to notice something else in verse 6. It says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Mine ears hast thou opened. What does he mean? Are pierced, are bored through with an awl. Back in the Old Testament, if you remember the Hebrew servant, 
the servant was to serve for a period of certain time, and after seven years, I believe it was, he was to be let go free from his servitude. You find it in Exodus chapter 21. And what happened? When the time came that this servant could go free from his master, he says, I love my, my wife. He re- had a wife. He received a wife while he was there serving. And he says, I love my children. And moreover, he said, I love my master. He'd learned to love the, the, the man that he served. I love my master. And he says, I will not go free. And then they were to take him to the doorpost. If he refused to go free, if he refused this freedom that he had, and they would take an awl and bore his ear through with an awl as a sign of perpetual servitude. Jesus is saying here, Mine ear hast thou opened. In other words, I came to do thy will. I am God's servant. I, yea, thy law is within my heart. God had a written law. God's law was in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find that he was God's divine servant upon this earth. And a perpetual servant. You and I can become servants of God. Jesus was a willing servant. Are you and I willing servants? Paul said, the Bible says, If Christ shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. We're free. But, Paul said, I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. What was he saying? He's saying, though I'm free from the law and free from condemnation, and I'm free under the grace of God, I can live uh, according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit to my heart and conscience, and I can live for God as free as a bird. And yet, he says, I'm going to become a bondservant. And he was saying by that, that he wanted to serve God. He wanted to be a perpetual willing servant of God. You and I can do that. But you better make sure you know what you're doing when you do. You better make sure that you mean it if you do. If you say, I'm going to serve the Lord, you're going to do it by the grace of God, first of all. You're not going to serve Him apart from His grace. Because you within yourself, you'd be like Peter when he says, I'm ready to go with thee to prison and to death, and the very next moment he was denying that he even knew the Lord. So you better say, by the grace of God I will serve you, but you better be willing, too, to count the cost of serving the Lord. You remember Jesus said some wanted to follow him, be his disciple? And he says, but, he says, have you considered the whole situation? Have you counted the cost? He says, birds of the air have nests, foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have nests. But he said, the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. In other words, you better consider the ins and outs of following Jesus Christ. But if you want to serve the Lord, he's, he's ready for you to become a servant of his if you willingly dedicate yourself to him. And don't think it's going to be easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It wasn't easy for the Apostle Paul. And neither will it be easy for you. In fact, there's going to be times that you'll have to really have a lot of prayer. You'll have to read God's Word and you'll have to say, God, help me to continue to do what you want me to do. In spite of all opposition, in spite of all criticism, in spite of all of the enemies and many friends even, you'll have to still go on and serve the Lord. But if you're willing to serve under those conditions, He welcomes you. I wonder how many of us really want to serve the Lord. 
You know, we have a lot of folks that just start. They, they're, we call them spurt servants. They, they just serve the Lord in spurts. Just like, you know, they start and serve the Lord for just a little while. And then they're out. And they're away from God. They're back in the world and back in sin. Then all of a sudden a revival comes along. Yeah, we really want to serve the Lord. And they'll get right back in there. Maybe they'll pray about it and they'll rededicate their life or something. And then all of a sudden, three weeks later, they're gone again. In and out. But if you want to serve God, it's going to take some consistency. They continued steadfastly. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And in breaking of bread and in fellowship. It's a continuing thing. It's not just something that happens once in a while. So, it takes a lot of stick to it. You must stick to it. You must continue. Okay, let's go on with this. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, To do thy will, O I delight to do thy will, O God, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. He says, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation, and lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. Jesus preached publicly and privately. He proclaimed God's truth in the synagogues and in the temple. He said, I sat daily with you in the temple and you laid no hands on me. I taught you daily in the temple. And Jesus taught by the seaside. He launched out a little from the land. He taught in the wilderness. He taught everywhere in the desert places. So he preached righteousness. And he preached righteousness in the great congregation. And he did not refrain his lips. And he says, O Lord, thou knowest. In other words, he proclaimed God's truth anywhere and everywhere. And you and I ought to be faithful in doing that. Paul did not refrain from telling all the truth of God. If you turn to the book of Acts chapter 20, it says this in verse uh, 19, uh, verse 20, And how I kept back nothing, Paul is rehearsing to the Ephesian elders, and he says, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells them some things. And then on down in verse 26, he says, Wherefore I take unto you the rec- to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul declared the whole truth, didn't we? We'd love to read all that. But time would fail us if we read every verse. But listen, he was telling here that he had uh, he kept back nothing that was profitable. And he says in verse 27, I have not shown to declare unto you all the counsel of God. It's the preacher's business, the teacher's business, to declare the whole of the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. Now then, something else. Uh, we find David's prayer, beginning verse 11. Look at verse 11. David's prayer. Well, we didn't... We could tie verse 10 into what we just said. Let's look at verse 10. Read verse 10 and 11. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth. In other words, I have not hidden any of this from the great congregation. That's what we ought to do is open up the Word of God to all the congregation of God's people, just as Jesus says He did. 
Now then, I want you to notice David's prayer, verse 11. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. David wanted God not to withhold mercy, not to withhold loving kindness. Do you know God's mercy and God's loving kindness is under his sovereign will? He says, I will have mercy. Let me read it to you in the book of Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. For saith, he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. God's mercy is under his divine, sovereign will. He is merciful as he pleases, to whom he pleases, and the way he pleases. And David was in need of this mercy. And he says, God, withhold not thy mercies, back in our text, from me. O Lord, let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. Why did David need mercy? Because he was surrounded with trouble. He had trouble on every side. Do you have trouble everywhere? The Bible says, Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength of very present health in time of trouble. In time of trouble. And so he says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will hear thee. And David needed mercy because of his evil nature. His evil nature was increased in strength from time to time. You say, well, preacher, I don't have that problem. I'm afraid you do. I'm afraid that old evil nature still exists there. You look at verse 12. It says, For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities, mine iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Look, therefore my heart faileth me. Mine iniquities? Surely. David's evil nature was increased in strength. It seemed like it was just... uh, Growing, multiplying. You and I have to reckon with that evil nature. You say, well, how could this apply to Jesus here, this particular passage of Scripture? He had no sin of his own, but all the sins of all people were laid upon him. If you read Isaiah 53, the Bible says, The Lord hath laid upon him, made to meet on Christ, the iniquity of us all. All of our sins and all of our transgressions were made to fall upon Jesus Christ. And he bore them. But here, as far as you and I are concerned, we're like David. We have evil that increases. The Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. David knew that the Lord took pleasure in delivering him. Look at verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. He knew that the Lord would be pleased to be a deliverer. Do you not do you and I know this that one thing God is able to do is able to deliver us? We've come to every kind of a situation in life that we as human beings could face and uh, like Paul Paul says out of them all the Lord delivered me. We a Christian ought to know, ought to be assured, ought to have a deep conviction and know this beyond all else that God is able to deliver us. Whatever may be the circumstance that God is able to deliver you. I believe that God would have us to know that. David knew that God took pleasure in delivering. 
in the book of Micah, <clears throat> chapter 7 and verse 18, it says this, Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. That's the character of God who is our deliverer. Now quickly, back in your psalm, Psalm 40, verse uh, 15, it says this. No, we, we read verse 13, so we'll take 14. Let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. David knew that the Lord would avenge him of his enemies. You don't have to do that. Someone says, well, I'm going to get revenge. David knew that God was the avenger of those enemies of his. And then in verse 15, Let them be desolate for a reward of their shame that say unto me, Aha, aha, those that cry out against you, that say, Aha, aha. You know what? People that want to make fun of your faith in Jesus Christ will say, Aha, see what happened to him? He claims to be a Christian. Look at the trouble he got into. Aha. Sometimes the enemies say, say, where is thy God? If you're a Christian, where is your God? He may seem as far away to you uh, at times as if you were in the desert and the skies were as brass and your prayers got no higher than the top of your head. But God's still there. And God still hears the cries of His children. But sometimes it seems like it's uh, futile. And yet... And the enemy would, have, would increase that thought upon you and try to make you believe that God would not hear. But God will hear. Then verse 16 and 17, we must hurry, our time is getting away. Verse 16 and 17, it says, Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified, the joy of a true Christian. Remember Jesus said to those that cast out the, the demons and went about healing those? In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, He says, Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. He says, Rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you. He could delegate His power to even an animal. Remember the old donkey spake with a man's voice back in the Old Testament to Balaam. But you see, God gave them power to cast out evil spirits, and then on the other hand, he said, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The true joy of the child of God is that he is a child of God, and that his name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. The Lord be magnified. He's to be praised for his salvation. Let them say continually, the Lord be magnified. In verse 17, David could qualify for help because he was poor and needy. You know who, who the Lord will help? The one that needs the help. Sometimes you help people that do not need the help. The Lord helps us because we need help. He helps me because I need help. He says, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me, Thou art my help and my delivered. Make no tarrying, O my God. He knew he was well qualified to be a recipient of God's grace. And if you can see yourself as poor and needy in the spiritual aspect and in a spiritual way, just like Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So, blessed are the poor. We're talking about spiritual poverty. And you qualify then for God to think upon you and to be your help and to deliver you. And he says, make no tarry.